In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's Greg Bluestein with the Politically Georgia podcast, your source for news and analysis about the goings-on under the Gold Dome and in state politics. And we just wrapped up another marathon session of the legislature that brought procrastinating lawmakers to the brink of midnight and beyond. Dozens of bills were passed on Sine Die, many of them at the last minute, but a few will have a bigger impact on us Georgians than a pair of driving bills. And here with me to talk about it today is David Wickert, the AJC's expert transportation reporter. David, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Well, first, before we begin, let's talk about another major transportation story that happened a year ago today. I remember sitting in the Georgia House last year, covering last year's sunny die, when word quickly spread that a bridge caught on fire. We couldn't quite believe it. Yeah, I couldn't either because I, I had been covering uh, the legislature. I had the morning shift and thought I was going to go home. I was cracking a beer and uh, and then Drinking I got a call. And I got a call from Bill Torpy that the uh, uh, the bridge had collapsed, and I didn't get to finish my beer. Yeah, and that was the I eighty five bridge collapse. It really strangled Georgia traffic uh, for how many how many weeks? Six weeks, and that is one of the busiest stretches of highway in Atlanta. About two hundred fifty thousand vehicles a day go through there, so it it uh, was a major major disruption for a lot of commuters. And as big of a nightmare as that was, it also became something of a success story for Georgia, right? Yeah. I mean, the fact that it was done in six weeks, I mean, uh, for those of us who are not engineers, it was sort of amazing to watch. I got lots of uh, questions from people. How are they doing that? You know, is it safe? Uh, you know, they, they, they worked around the clock. Uh, the GDOT's uh, inspectors were there 24 hours a day looking behind the contractor to make sure they were doing good work. They used uh, lots of techniques to do things simultaneously, which sped up the work. They also used some pretty expensive quick-curing concrete. Uh, you know, who knew such things existed unless you're an engineer, but that's how they did it. And now you do it, and our listeners do now as well. Uh, but also it sort of elevated the profile of Russell McMurray, the state's uh, Department of uh, Transportation head, right? Yes, yes. He, uh, uh, of course, the, it was the federal government that pretty much paid for this bridge. And so U.S. Secretary uh, of Transportation Elaine Chow came to visit when it reopened. She praised Russell McMurray. He was named Georgian of the Year, I think, in Georgia Trend magazine. And... Uh, of course, the biggest thing probably for him is the state transportation board gave him a $100,000 raise. Not bad. Um, and I think he also met with President Trump. He's been on the speaking circuit. He's become one of the higher profile figures of the Governor Deals administration. That's for sure. I mean, and uh, I remember in those first hours after the bridge collapsed, obviously he was under a lot of heat. 
uh, as someone who observed him up close, I mean, he, he seemed to handle it pretty well. He didn't lose his cool. The governor expressed his uh, support for him at a time when, you know, he might not have. Mm-hmm. And uh, McMurray emerged from that uh, looking pretty good. So where you're down the road, no, no pun intended or pun intended. Um, what has the repair, what, what has the state done to make sure that this, something like this never happens again? What lessons has the state learned from this? Well, the main thing they've done is uh, look under their bridges and see if, hey, we got any other stuff <laughs> that could catch on fire. If you remember, the fire was caused by, allegedly caused by a homeless man who said it, uh, but, but it quickly spread to some uh, uh, some conduit, plastic conduit that they had stored under the bridge. And GDOT had stored it there for years. And it's not the kind of stuff that easily catches on fire. Mm-hmm. It's like a milk carton. Uh, but once it catches, it really catches and goes up. And that's what essentially brought the bridge down. So a lot of people were saying, okay, yeah, a homeless guy started this fire. But GDOT, why are you storing this stuff under the bridge that, you know, got hot enough to bring the bridge down? And, um, the biggest thing uh, GDOT has done since then is, again, look under the bridges, make sure they don't have stuff like this. They are cooperating with an ongo- ongoing federal investigation, uh, although that investigation is focused on this practice of storing stuff under under highways. Uh, the state fire marshal is also looking at GDOT storage practices, uh, and GDOT is going to come out with some new policies about that once these reports come out, which could be in the next few weeks. But the bottom line is they're already doing it, and the policy is going to be, hey, let's not store that stuff under the bridges. So let's talk about this session. After years and years, it seems like, of attempts, Georgia finally has a pathway to significantly expand uh, transit across Metro Atlanta. You use the word in your story dramatic, and it kind of feels like that. You know, and dramatic, I suppose, will depend on what actually happens from here. Uh, what the bill would do is allow 13 counties to... Uh, go to their voters and say, hey, do you want to approve a sales tax for mass transit? Some of those counties are going to say uh, no, and no county is going to be made to do it if their voters don't want to do it. Uh, however, if uh, a place like Gwinnett or Cobb or Fulton County uh, want to ask their voters to approve a transit expansion and a majority say yes, I mean, that's hundreds of millions of dollars for transit. And then, of course, the governor's budget, which was approved yesterday, also includes $100 million in bonds for transit. Uh, They didn't get everything they wanted out of that bill. They were looking for a sort of a dedicated source of funding. There was talk of an airport concessions tax, uh, an Uber and taxi fee. Those didn't make it, but but hundred million dollars is is no small change. Yeah, and, and that comes on top of seventy five million dollars in bonds about three years ago um, from another transportation bill. So that's in in total one hundred seventy five million dollars over the last three or four years. So yeah, again, no small potatoes. But at the beginning of the session, it was looking like there would be some sort of more dedicated stream, so that lawmakers wouldn't have to go to the governor or try to put stuff in the budget every year for transit. Right? I mean, there was talk yes. of an Uber fee. There was talk of a sales tax on goods at the airport, both those in the end died a, a quick death. Uh, yeah, I think there were some concerns about the airport tax because there are FAA rules that say taxes like that have to go to the airport, not to something on else. On aviation purposes. Yes, right? for aviation purposes. And you know, I, I need to talk, uh, follow up with some of the, the, the folks involved, but uh, anything that looks like a tax increase like the Uber fee might not have been a great sell in an auction year. 
Mm-hmm. And we were getting messages all day. Let's let's give let's give listeners an inside glimpse at what it's like now. It, you know, once the bill passed, it looks like it's just this, a tidy package. But these last few days, really last few weeks, the, the back and forth over this legislation was fast and furious. Bill was changing not just overnight, but sometimes by the hour. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the the each chamber passed its own version. There were some significant differences on the surface. There's talk of cooperation. Uh, you know, uh, there's lots of behind the scenes, behind the scenes negotiations, but uh, especially this week, uh, you know, th- there was a conference committee of members from both houses. They they would call meetings and cancel them. You could tell behind the scenes that they you know they they were thought they were close to an agreement, and then there was no agreement. Um, This tax is out. This tax is in. Exactly. We are both getting emails and text messages. Sometimes I was getting texts of the latest version of the bill, and the bill was changing so fast. By the time I looked at it or sent it to you, there was another version of the bill out. That's true. And uh, I I think there was some question among people who were following this closely. Would they pull it off? And I've heard that perhaps there was some head knocking from higher authorities uh, to, to make it happen. Uh, but ultimately it did happen. Yeah, and folks, we joked last week in the preview to the Sine Die uh, episode uh, talking about how we might as well name it unintended consequences, but that's how legislation is crafted, and sometimes there are things slipped into to, to proposals that might, maybe they, they weren't, they were innocuous sounding language, but they do have long-term consequences, and so we're going to see over the next few weeks how that all hashes out. Yeah, and there's still provisions that we're kind of looking at and saying, oh, that's interesting. Like, uh, uh, you know, there's a provision that would let Cobb County have a MARTA vote. Uh, we kind of knew about Gwinnett County possibly getting a MARTA vote, and, and they they would have that option under this legislation. But reading the, the bill in more detail late last night and early this morning, it became apparent that Cobb County would also have that option. And... Uh, uh, Cobb County has been even more resistant to MARTA than Gwinnett County has. So uh, it's an interesting transition. Yeah, Cobb has been one of, probably one of the biggest roadblocks in this whole bill, uh, this whole uh, negotiations, because a lot of a lot of lawmakers, especially conservatives in the northern part, the more rural part of Cobb County, uh, are concerned about the cost that it would bring and also the benefits. Because if you're not on that sort of I-75 line where MARTA might go, you're further out into the, into the interior or exterior of the county. Uh, you might be paying a sales tax for a train line that you won't use at all. Yeah, there there is definitely a lot of skepticism in Cobb County. Uh, uh, elected officials there, uh, many of them are convinced that if you held a vote today, a countywide vote on expanding transit in Cobb County, it wouldn't pass, which is why there in this bill has been a lot of attention paid to creating a special district uh, in Cobb County uh, basically basically in areas that would want transit so they can, if they want, uh, pass a tax and pay for the transit they want and not bother the rest of the county, so to speak. Yeah, and, and Cobb and Gwinnett, both in the 1960s and 70s, both rejected MARTA expansion. So this is not a new debate to them. But at least in Gwinnett, maybe Gwinnett more so than Cobb, there's a sense that demographic changes, uh, the, the, the county is becoming much more diverse and much more reliant on, uh, you know, much more dense, much more uh, new developments coming up along I-85, um, you know, much more amenable to, to mass transit. And a few of their bigger companies, including a Fortune 500 company, recently moved from Gwinnett to Sandy Springs in part to be closer to a transit line. Yeah, and the person in Gwinnett who's been fascinating to watch throughout all this is Charlotte Nash, the mm-hmm. county commission chairwoman. 
she has for the last couple of years been on the record more than once, as recently as last fall, saying, I don't think a MARTA vote could pass in Gwinnett County. On the other hand, Charlotte Nash has been down there week after week lobbying for this bill, and she wanted a provision which would allow Gwinnett County to have that option to go to, to have a MARTA vote this year if they wanted. She, she, she lobbied for it. She wants the option. Now, Cobb and Gwinnett and these other counties, they don't have to join MARTA to get a transit expansion. They could get a, a transit sales tax and go it on their own, but they both wanted the option of joining MARTA uh, because they want to have options. Huh. And, and, and Charlotte Nash has been given a lot of credit uh, for her lobbying efforts. She's a Republican in Gwinnett County, but as you say, that county is changing, and I think Charlotte Nash knows that, and uh, I think she's proven herself to be a pretty savvy politician throughout all this. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the core metro Atlanta counties, but what do the more sort of exurban uh, uh, metro Atlanta counties like Cherokee and Forsyth, what does this have in store for them? I think in the short run, not much. I don't think that you will see a lot of support for uh, uh, expanding mass transit, certainly not rail or anything like that in, in a lot of the outlying counties. Now, some of those counties do have uh, some bus services and things like that, and maybe they would see uh, an opportunity to expand that for the citizens who, who want to need them. Senior citizens need mass transit. Uh, sometimes mass transit just means you know the bus that you can call to take you to your doctor's appointment, and that might prove uh, 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 to be something that some of those counties might be interested in. And we've talked about this before, but this to me still strikes me as such a remarkable uh, sea change in opinion from Republicans uh, and and Democrats, uh, especially those outside Metro Atlanta who used to overwhelmingly oppose any sort of tax. Uh, you know, again, this doesn't include state funding other than the the bond money, which is significant, but no dedicated stream. But still, even even years ago, decades ago, when there were votes on letting uh, counties tax themselves. Uh, they they often came up against fierce opposition. There's a lot of concern from conservatives and 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 even some liberals uh, not wanting to spend money on a fixed rail, on light rail, on something like this. Now we're seeing a total 180 on this. We're seeing conservative Republicans. We've seen Governor Deal came up to Dunwoody not so long ago to speak outside the State Farm Building that's being that's being under construction right on a martyr line, and so a, a lot of Republicans are using the economic development as a reason to embrace mass transit. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a couple of things going on there. First, politicians aren't dumb. They they take their cues from their constituents, and their constituents have been changing over the decades in places like Gwinnett and Cobb County. A lot of, you know, hundreds of thousands of new residents, many of whom are more interested in mass transit, and so therefore politicians might be more amenable to it. But as you say, I think the economic development aspect of that has been a big uh, eye-opener for, for many Republicans and, and Democrats as well. Um, and, and the other thing is, I think there's still tremendous skepticism about the cost of rail. I think a lot of people assume that when they talk about transit expansion, that that's going to mean MARTA rails going into Gwinnett County or Cobb or North Fulton. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. In fact, in Gwinnett County, their new transit plan calls for bus rapid transit, which is sort of a hybrid. It, it, it is uh, it's, a, it's an express bus service with limited stops, but it, it, it's not in normal traffic. They'll use the, uh, the express lanes like on I-85. Uh, there'll be transit stops 
uh, although not as elaborate as, say, Marta's Five Point Station, but a place where you go, you park your car, there's a station there, and you board a bus, and it takes you downtown Atlanta or to the perimeter or to the CDC. Um, so that's more the type of transit that is likely coming to, to Gwinnett. North Fulton, you know, Fulton County also has a transit plan that includes bus rapid transit. Cobb County's developing a transit plan. It's not done yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see bus rapid transit being a, a big thing there. It is possible that uh, in the long run, some of these places might get rail, but I think uh, in the minds of a lot of uh, elected officials in the suburbs, they're going to have to be demonstrated that the bus rapid transit, you know, let, let's see how that goes. If, they're, if they get enough riders to, to justify something more permanent, then we'll do that. Now, it's interesting to me. We're seeing a little backlash from the, the original champion of mass transit in, in Atlanta, which is the city of Atlanta. And we're hearing some concerns, you know, as Marta's looking to expand to Emory University and maybe up Georgia 400 to, to Alpharetta and Roswell. We're, we heard uh, just the other day from the architect of the Beltline, uh, who was concerned that you know, mass transit wasn't going to move up the Beltline. He said he designed the Beltline, Ryan uh, Gravel, he said he designed the Beltline always, not as a path, but always with mass transit as part of it. So it wasn't just going to be some some concrete path for, for, um, for you know, wealthy people to live on either side of it. He wanted mass transit to help with mobility and to help with uh, people who need affordable housing and who are not of, who are of, uh, you know, middle income and, and and working class incomes to be able to live and work around that area. And he's worried that with all this transit uh, talk and expansion, that that Beltline in the heart of Atlanta will be left out. Yeah, and I'll confess that I I am less familiar with the Beltline issues, but this may be a case where uh, grand visions are running up against political realities and financial limits. Uh, Rail of any kind costs a lot of money. And often those projects cost even more than you think they're going to cost. And if there's only X number of dollars to go around, uh, it may not be your project that gets that gets funded. Mm-hmm. And they usually only get more expensive the That's longer right. it takes to buy the land or the right of way right. or the easements. Well, let's talk about the other big bill that you've been covering and that did successfully pass last night. And again, the very last minute, it seemed, I mean, near the, in the final, what, hour or two? The last uh, half an hour. Half an hour, the distracted driving bill. Give us the brass tacks. What, what, what does that do? So right now, Georgia bans drivers from texting. You can't text while you drive. And if you're 18 or under and you have a learner's permit, you can't use any sort of wireless device while you're driving. Um, this bill would prohibit everyone from handling their phone, their iPod, anything like that while you're driving. The, the idea is that it's just a distraction no matter what you know, you're doing with it, whether you're talking, uh, uh, texting, what have you. If your hands aren't on the steering wheel and your eyes are down in your lap, you know, dialing a phone or what have you, uh, it's a distraction. Now, there was a lot of debate about how much of a distraction is holding your phone while you're talking versus using hands-free technology, which is what this bill would do. It, re- it would require you to, uh, uh, to use hands-free technology while you talk. You could text, but you have to, again, have to use voice technology to do it. Um, so it's probably going to be a culture change. And the reason behind it is 
Traffic fatalities are, are up significantly in recent years. Traffic accidents, it's a lot of rear-end collisions and things like that that are an indication that people just aren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. You had a, a Sunday front page story the other week that kind of, the headline kind of summed it up, life versus liberty. Yeah, and that was a real, uh, it was fascinating to watch it play out in the General Assembly because on the one side, you've got, again, safety advocates and families who have lost loved ones in, in crashes to distracted driving talking about life. You know, my, my husband died. My daughter died because of this. And on the other side, you've got, a, you know, a, a heartfelt argument that's very abstract. I don't need the government to be telling me what to do. And, you know, there, there are some uh, legislators who for example, don't like seatbelt laws because it's a similar similar thing. Uh, if I don't wear a seatbelt, that's my problem. Uh, the difference, I guess, with the cell phone issue is, yeah, if you're in a crash and you're not wearing a seatbelt, you could die or get injured. But if you're distracted and you're driving, you're endangering other people. And the powerful argument that uh, some of these families were making, sometimes in tears, was, you know what? Your liberty is not as important as my husband's life or my daughter's mm-hmm. life. And I want to talk about that a little bit because it, it was the, the family members of the victims who played such a forceful role. There was about two dozen of them at the legisl- at the signee die the other night who were trying to make personal appeals. And it wasn't like that was the first time they were at the Capitol. They were here at the Capitol all session, really. Yes, there were people who I saw at every meeting. Uh, sometimes, you know, other people would show up for some meetings, but not others. But they were there consistently. Uh, and, and one of the lawmakers uh, last night uh, made an interesting point. These people don't want something from the lawmakers. A lot of people go to the legislature and they want something for themselves. Uh, the way this was described was these people want something for us. They don't want us to go through the pain that they've gone through. And again, there was more than one, one lawmaker who shed a tear listening mm. to these people. There was more than one lawmaker who ultimately shared their own stories about losing someone to distracted driving. And again, those are very powerful. And I think it's safe to say that they shaped uh, the lawmakers' opinions. And a lot of times you, you, you think going into these debates that lawmakers can't be changed, that they're going to hold the party line or they're going to they're stay with whatever they, their original thought was. But in this case, those vict- those family members of victims, plus Representative John Carson, who who sponsored the bill, they really did change attitudes. And to me, it was Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, who was an early, uh, I don't know if opponent is the word, but he was very skeptical about it. Mm-hmm. He was worried about that sort of big government intrusion. Mm-hmm. He's talked about it at a gubernatorial debate, along with Michael Williams, who's also running for governor. Um, so there were some, some, some big uh, hurdles they had to overcome. And in the end, they ended up supporting it. Yes, and uh, it's funny, when, when you reported on that gubernatorial debate, I heard from several transit advocates that uh, you never want your bill to become an issue in a, in a campaign. No way. And uh, they, they thought it was in serious trouble then. Uh, but ultimately, uh, they changed their mind. And uh, uh, you know, the governor came out a couple of times and endorsed that bill. I think that might have also played a key role. You know, he even endorsed it on Signy Die. He was asked at his uh, his final Signy Die scrum. Uh, it was a, kind of an emotional moment for him about the distracted driving bill. And it was a TV reporter, Doug Richards, asked him what it's going to be like for him, you know, to, to have to drive for the first time in eight years. He's been he's been driven by security detail for all these years and whether or not he's worried about distracted drivers behind the wheel. And he kind of made a, a joke saying, well, we're more worried about driving ourselves because we haven't driven in so long. So watch out. Sandra and I are about to hit the roads again. I'll be on the watch. 
And now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Phrase of the Week with James Salzer. Picking winners or losers. Legislators abhor the idea of picking winners or losers, even though they do it all the time. They use the phrase, picking winners or losers, when they decide often to give tax breaks, which they then describe as, quote, leveling the playing field. What not picking winners or losers means is that the legislature doesn't want to pass laws or give tax breaks that benefit individuals or specific corporations. That issue came up earlier in the session when the legislature was deciding whether to exempt jet fuel from state sales tax. Initially, back in the day, the sales tax exemption was for Delta, the hometown uh, airlines. But legislators said, you know, we don't want to pick winners or losers, so we're going to spread this around and we're going to exempt it in general. So it'll affect Delta, but it also affects Southwest, affect other air cargo companies. So it was, quote, leveling the playing field. That all looked fine until when Delta decided to announce that they were going to take away the discount that they give NRA members to fly on Delta. Legislators kind of changed their mind about the whole concept of not picking winners or losers. The legislature took away that tax break. So by the end of this week, there was a clear loser, Delta and the other airlines, to the tune of about $50 million. Now it's time for the lightning round where we talk about some other major issues in politics this week. And what we'll do is we're going to hone in on some of the big bills that also passed, aside from those transportation-related measures, that Governor Deal now has on his desk. Another big one that he's certainly assured to sign is his criminal justice package. Uh, The governor, for the first seven years in office, has slowly tried to remake the criminal justice system by making it easier to divert low-level, sort of nonviolent offenders away from costly prison beds and towards rehabilitation programs and other things like that. Um, His last stab at it uh, would loosen requirements for cash bail and give local authorities more leeway to issue citations for nonviolent crimes. It's really an issue that has come up all over the nation and all over the state. Atlanta passed a similar measure earlier this year uh, to basically say that people who have nonviolent offenses shouldn't be tagged with Costly bail for $100, $1,000, whatever it might be, because oftentimes that means that those, those, those defendants end up in prison, taking up prison beds and away from their jobs and their families and issues like that. And critics have long said this basically uh, criminalizes being poor. Another huge issue and another bill that the governor will definitely sign is the $26.2 billion budget. But there's something a little special and different about this budget. Uh, Lawmakers and the governor made a little bit of history when they approved that budget last week. Uh, A growing state economy that brought up record tax revenue allowed lawmakers to fully fund the K-12 school funding formula for the first time since at least 2002. Uh, So it's a huge deal. The quality basic education formula has been an issue in every gubernatorial campaign, it seems, since it was first passed in 1985. And in 2014, Jason Carter, the Democratic challenger to Governor Deal, made it the centerpiece, the focal point 
of his challenge. He said that the governor and, and, and his predecessor, Sonny Perdue, failed to fully fund the for- formula and that it was hurting school students. He pledged to significantly boost that revenue. And this is interesting. When the governor did that uh, last week, Jason Carter took to Twitter and thanked him uh, publicly saying, you know, I thanked him myself and I want to thank him in front of everyone. Thank you for uh, for, for significantly increasing funding to K-12. He wanted to give credit where credit was due. So it was sort of a, a nice bipartisan moment in Georgia politics. Another bill I want to talk about is, well, it's been called a few things. It's been called the Mimosa Mandate. It's been called the Brunch Bill. Whatever the name the measure to allow Georgia restaurants to serve morning cocktails on Sundays has been dead in the water for years at the legislature. That's because it's been tied up in the Senate uh, because of powerful opponents. But this year, that logjam broke. Lawmakers voted overwhelmingly to approve a measure that lets restaurants and wineries that serve food to begin alcohol sales a little bit earlier at 11 a.m. on Sundays instead of 1230. Uh, comes with an important caveat, though. Local voters would have to first approve the time change Governor Neal is also expected to sign that measure into law. And the last big one I want to talk about is medical marijuana. The state adopted a new medical marijuana program a few years ago under a lot of criticism and and some controversy. But for a long time, uh, opponents from both sides of the aisle worried that approving a medical marijuana program would be a slippery slope and allow recreational marijuana down the road. That hasn't happened yet. And uh, all candidates from both sides of the aisle for governor are all opposed to that. But Many of them do want an expansion of the current medical marijuana program, and it looks like that's going into the books. Georgians suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other chronic pain will be covered by the state's growing medical marijuana program under legislation that passed in the final hour of the session last week. So that is a significant bill, uh, and it came after a lot of controversy. There is claims that Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle blocked the bill from passing. There was claims that that... The governor might not sign it. There was all sorts of worries. But in the end, it, it passed, and it looks like the governor will also sign that as well, even though he hasn't said as much. And one more item for our lightning round is the end of the legislative session means the beginning of yet another new phase in the governor's race. This is the all-out sprint to the May 22nd primaries. Three candidates for governor are office holders and prohibited from raising cash during the during the session. Now they are all sprung free to hit the campaign trail in earnest. Uh, we, we've, we've seen Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle and Michael Williams, the state senator, already send out fundraising notices within a few hours of the session ending. Um, so they're going to be trying to raise cash. And really, everyone's getting down to the final stretch. This is really the part where we it goes from a marathon to a sprint. So we're right in the middle of that race, and we'll be covering it every second of it. Well, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Politically Georgia. You can follow us at Bluestein on Twitter, on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and of course on myajc.com and politicallygeorgia.com for all the latest political news and analysis in Georgia. Thanks for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.